This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Esri. Esri's leading software helps millions map, understand, and solve for the world's most complex problems, including aiding in environmental and humanitarian support for changing climate crises worldwide. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Timothy Pugo, the Post Climate Correspondent. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of technology in addressing climate change. With us from the Columbia Business School, our guest, Granat Wagner. He is a climate economist. Granat, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi there. Hi, great to have you. Um, so I, I want to get started with just a, a little question about you and what you do. I feel like over the past five or 10 years, we have seen so many new types of jobs develop um, in climate sustainability, the types of jobs that did not exist before, both in business and in academia. So could you just tell us a little bit about what a climate economist actually does and, and, and how, how your job is different from the, from the conventional economists as we may usually think of them? So, yeah, I guess one of those jobs was mine here at the business school. Um, I, I guess, okay, frankly, I've been a climate economist all my life. Um, my wife makes me wear these glasses so I don't get confused with students. Um, but uh, uh, still, I've been at this for 20 years by now. Um, and yeah, back then it was an oxymoron, right? Like you're either you care about the climate or you care about employment or know about interest rates and so on and so forth. Um, nobody considers a climate economist an oxymoron these days, right? We know that the problem is misguided market forces. And what's the solution? It's guiding them in the right direction. Well, let's talk about um, some of those market forces. Um, I, I used to do a little bit of markets coverage before I came to DC. And I remember, I, I think it was only about five years ago, reading some investment bank analysis that there just there wasn't enough to invest in um, that even for financial institutions that wanted to um, get ahead on climate change that were thinking about clean energy there simply were not enough uh, enough places enough capacity to take the money that they wanted to invest now it seems like we have all types of new climate especially tech climate tech investments being talked about announced all the time what changed? Uh, exactly, right? The clean energy race is on. Um, and frankly, it was Washington, right? 14 or so months ago, uh, 13 months ago, August last year, right? 14 months ago, um, sort of, you know, climate policy dead again for a generation, uh, what to do now? And then in many ways as a surprise, we saw the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, um, and the race is on. Uh, there are certainly plenty of investable, scalable projects out there. Um, we are literally talking trillions of dollars worth of investments pointing in the right direction. And frankly, what changed is, yeah, climate tech, climate policy, all pointing in the right direction when solar PV is the cheapest form of electricity in history, right? That's tech. It might be sort of, you know, boring old tech by now, as in, you know, it's not the sexy new fusion technology that's always going to be 10 years out and has been forever. It's solar panels, it's heat pumps, it's induction stoves. But yes, that too is climate tech. Of course it is. 
and there is plenty of it out there. I, I want to come back to some of that in a second. We'll talk about unicorns, but first, um, you said a, a magic phrase, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, I know that uh, post readers, people in the post community are very savvy, but I, I always like to make sure because there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding out there that the Inflation Reduction Act, despite its name, uh, is actually largely a climate bill. Um, whether you're taking calculations from Congress um, or from bank analysts, anywhere from 250 billion to, to, to 1 trillion uh, is gonna be uh, provided directly or maybe unlocked uh, in, in future uh, tax credits from that bill that was passed a year ago. Uh, and, and I wanna ask you, you mentioned the US government, you mentioned that, that giant bill, but there are other countries, I think all of Europe, um, doing similar plans. Could, could you give us a little guidance on that? Is that it, it, the, the climate tech that we're talking about and the money flowing into it just in the US or this happening all over the world? Uh, so it's happening all over the world, right? That's the global clean energy race. And frankly, it was jump-started by the US, by this inflation reduction. Uh, I, I would say that it is absolutely appropriately named, right? So not in the sense that you know Biden signs it into law and inflation goes down the next day. Of course not. But frankly, when most of current inflation, inflation last year, inflation this year still, is due to high fossil fuel prices. Surprisingly high fossil fuel prices, right? In part due to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, right? When, when he blows a fuse and invades Ukraine on February 24th, right? Prices spike that day. Well, how do you attack, uh, tackle fossil inflation? You get off fossil fuel. Um, now, that's a middle-term, uh, long-term play, right? Not happening overnight. That's years, decade in the making. But yes, absolutely, the right economic answer to fossil inflation is the Inflation Reduction Act, something like the Inflation Reduction Act, getting off fossil fuels. And that is a global race. Uh, so if I could test you a little bit on the economist part of, of climate economists, just, just a little more. Um, getting into getting in further into this like in, in inflation idea and the tie-in between inflation and, and where we're getting our energy from, um, I think on its face the logic of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. You get more solar, wind, uh, any type of energy production capacity out there, and theoretically that should boost supply. Uh, if you if you keep boosting supply, that that should you know reduce prices and reduce inflation. But it takes years, as you alluded to, in some cases, decades, to build a lot of the infrastructure that we need. And we're still, right now, even as the, the dynamics change, um, still dependent on fossil fuels, as you say, in the short term. So, when, so that type of inflation, or, or I guess I should say um, deflationary effect um, from all this clean energy investment, how long do you think it's gonna take? Two, five years, 10 years? for that to really have deflationary effect? Uh, so the short answer is yes, right? This is not overnight. It does take years. Um, I would say we do see plenty of positive effects already, right? So first of all, there's the investment angle, right? Literally hundreds of billions of dollars invested in the right kind of projects. Um, that creates jobs. It also, of course, puts some upward pressure on prices itself, right? So there is fossil inflation on the one hand. Um, there's, on the other hand, in if what you might call sort of climate inflation, right? Sort of the clean tech version. If there's a lot of demand, 
for solar panels, heat pumps. In the short run, their prices will go up as a result, but that sets exactly the right kind of price signals, right? We want more of that. And frankly, we are pitting a technology, renewable energy, against a commodity, oil, coal, gas. Commodity prices are always going to fluctuate. Technologies can only get better, cheaper over time, right? So I like the chances here on the clean tech side. Well, I'll have you put your crystal ball away just for a little bit. And I want to go back to what you were talking about before, about how in some ways it's like bread and butter, solar and wind technology that's still the core of, of climate tech. Uh, and, and we're going to diverge a little bit from there. But I, I want to, to, to talk about some of the things that you've said in the past um, about uh, unicorns uh, and the, you know, the over-exaggeration, the, the hyperbole, um, the froth. Maybe I'll let you characterize it. That sometimes develops around these things. These startups. When we talk about unicorns, we're talking about startups uh, with valuations above one billion dollars. Um, so I, I'm curious if all of that excitement, in some way, has the potential of ending up like hurting consumers or hurting the fight to, to slow climate change. What is it about these emerging climate technologies um, that that you want the average American to consider? I think the key bit is that. This goes back to the International Energy Agency calling solar power, rightfully, the cheapest form of electricity in history. It is. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a couple bits here, right? You've got to put the solar panel on the south side of the roof if you live on the northern hemisphere, of course. Um, but uh, we're not going back here, right? Solar power isn't going to get more expensive. Uh, so, yes, it is the, you know, the bread and butter here of climate tech, if you will, or you're not, induction you're not, stoves. You're not, I'm sorry, can, yeah. I, can I jump in for a second here? But just because sure. um, I, I, I got to challenge you a little bit on this, or at least play devil's advocate. I know you're saying that solar oh. tech is not going to get more expensive, but you know we are dealing with a completely new interest rate environment right now that has tested all sorts of uh, energy technologies. You, you really don't think there's a chance that, that especially as we're, we're like, you know, having trouble finding the land for solar, that combined with uh, interest rates, other issues could not lead to increases in solar tech prices again down the line? Uh, okay, so happy to point you to my Washington Post op-ed that talks about the three main challenges to overcome here. Absolutely, right? You know, this is not, you know, just get out of the way and everything will run swimmingly. Of course, right? Uh, okay, nimbyism, right? Uh, you don't want anything built near, you know, anyone for that matter, right? So sort of banana, I believe, is the acronym here, right? Um, is, uh, is, is crazy, of course, right? And we've got to overcome some of those challenges. Yes, but the economics is absolutely pointing in the right direction. Let's go back to some of the market dynamics here and, and the point that we were discussing about unicorns and these startups. You know, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of that uh, that fervor was fed uh, by interest in uh, an investment vehicle often referred to as SPACs. It's, a, it's an acronym for special purpose acquisition companies. There was just such an appetite um, for, for this type of business structure uh, a few years ago in, in the market, uh, and that fed the, the you know a, a lot of money, the way it was being moved around, creation of new companies, merging of companies. Um, was that just a, a, a bubble? that's pop, and, and what does that mean now for uh, growth and adoption of, of new climate tech? 
okay, look, right? So there will always be winners and losers, right? I can't tell you that every renewables company will be on the winning side. They won't. Yes, there will be bubbles. Of course, there will be. Um, for the matter, not every industry in every country will win either, right? So when you look at sort of the transatlantic clean energy race, there's a reason why, you know, von der Leyen, the European Commission president, right, is rightfully jumping up and down and saying, wait, this U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is, in fact, disadvantaging European companies up to a point. But this is actually a close colleague here of mine at Columbia Business School, Connor Walsh, who just wrote a paper, co-authored a paper called Clean Growth, where, frankly, Europe's GDP in 2030 will be higher because of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. And by the way, vice versa, right? In the sense if Europe, when Europe, as Europe is investing in clean energy, in learning by doing, in climbing the learning curve, sliding down the cost curve, U.S. companies, global companies, global GDP will go up as a result. Um, so no, not you know, not everyone will be a, a winner, right? Um, you know, some businesses will win, some businesses will fail, of course. But overall, again, we are certainly racing in the right direction here. And frankly, the one winner, the ultimate winner is clear, right? That's the planet. That's us actually doing something about climate change. Let's talk about one of the winners on the tech side, or at least being potential winners, um, to tie in what we're discussing about the Inflation Reduction Act and US policy. There has been a real emphasis by the Biden administration and Congress that EVs get, um, get constant bipartisan support. Uh, and seem to be popular with with average consumers too. Americans love to drive, uh, and so I want to bring up an article that you wrote that touched on this. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you here. Uh, you say, "quote It is right to cheer the rapidly growing electric vehicle market, but it is similarly important to consider the vast potential not only of transportation alternatives like e-bikes or old-fashioned bicycles, but also a better city." Um, I in in Washington, the political dynamics are not really, you know, the vibes aren't going in that direction right now, quite frankly. And, and I'm just wondering if, if, if you think um, that our lawmakers have given up on bicycles and mass transit, like how grave is it uh, that, that, that that situation, that that dynamic has emerged? Um, and, and what could make that type of new technology, again, by, I, old, even old technology, old bikes, but also <laughs> new bikes like electric bikes, uh, more effective, uh, maybe uh, adopted more frequently, uh, cities styled differently, as you say, um, to, to fight against climate change? Uh, so, sure, right? So, I mean, frankly, let me start out by pointing you to the American Enterprise Institute and their Walkable Neighborhoods Program, right? So, uh, no, this is not, or frankly, it shouldn't be, a oh the you know the left wants us to bike and uh, live in small walkable places and turn us all into vegans and so on and so forth. Now full disclosure, you are talking to a vegetarian non-driver. I've never had a driver's license, never needed one. Uh, certainly don't need that one now. Living in New York City, and by the way, um, more than half of adult New Yorkers agree, right? Don't have a driver's license. Eighty percent of us in Manhattan. Don't drive. Um, okay, 
Now, does that work everywhere? No, of course not. Right? Massive lock-in effects of you know building massive suburbs, exurbs, and so on and so forth. But um, well, actually, <laughs> the ex-head of Tesla AI um, tweeted. Um, about a year or so ago, I think actually it was April of last year when he was still in the employ of Tesla. Uh, basically, the guy responsible, chiefly responsible for the ultimate technofix, right? Turning EVs into AVs, autonomous vehicles. He tweeted essentially saying, I always forget how lovely European cities are, much more walkable, and so on and so forth. And of course, right? You know, the appropriate response is to basically say, okay, well, World Cup, right? Turns out uh, there is a better way to organize ourselves than you know the sprawling suburbs of Silicon Valley. Now, no, am I going to win elections in Silicon Valley or nationwide with this sort of statement? No, of course not, <laughs> right? So yes, there is a balance to be struck between, frankly, picking people worth picking a, a people where they are, right, and essentially saying, look, you're currently driving, you're dependent on a car. Here is the electric version, which, yes, is fundamentally a better technology. It drives five times as far on the same amount of energy as the internal combustion engine um, or even the internal combustion engine using e-fuels, right? So great. Here is a techno fix. And yes, let's cheer it. The Ford 150 Lightning is a fantastic vehicle, much, much better than the Ford 150, right? Most popular car in the US. Now, does that mean that every New Yorker should pick up driving suddenly because there's this thing called an electric vehicle? Of course not, right? You still live a longer, healthier life if you bike to work uh, and then if you drive to work, right? So that's not gonna go away. Um, and yes, of course, at the end of the day, it's a balance here, a balance between the techno fix and the broader changes that, for example, New York City introducing congestion pricing next year. Um, we don't know the level yet. We know it's coming. Well, you know, that alone isn't going to fix climate either. But yes, that too is a step in the right direction. Granat, I've got you on good old fashioned urban planning, bicycles, and then bread and butter, new tech, solar, wind, EVs. Um, sounds like a pretty comprehensive prescription uh, for addressing climate change. Thank you so much uh, for joining us here on Washington Post Live. Thanks, Tim. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch. The world can't fight climate change without cutting-edge technology. Jack Dangerman, one of the pioneers in the field of geographic information system technology, is here with me today. Jack is president of ESRI. It's a company he founded along with his wife in 1969 with a vision that geographic analysis and computer mapping could help us design a better future. Jack is a graduate of Harvard University Graduate School of Design and has received 14 honorary degrees for his contributions to geography, environmental science, planning, and GIS. Jack, thanks for joining me. My great pleasure, Kathleen. Jack, you've advocated for the need to build a map of the world that essentially maps everything. How will that help us tackle the climate crisis? Well, maps are a kind of language and have been 
used as a language to both understand and also predict things for actually thousands of years. Like what's around the mountain or how, what's going to happen when I go over there or if I locate here, what's going to be the consequences? And now in the digital age, these maps are alive. They're linking to things like satellite images coming off of satellites or real-time measurement or the, the internet of things. Uh, and the maps are becoming digital in various ways. This is helping people both understand but also act in, in amazing ways. And with respect to climate, it's helping them understand like where should we not locate, like in a floodplain or in an area that's going to have storm surge or where should we stop trains, for example, because a tornado is going to run into the train. So increasingly, as we wire up the world and make it available through the internet, like we did with COVID, uh, the world can see. And as a response, and you saw this with COVID, the world changed. We changed in both our understanding gradually, and then uh, we were able to respond better. So this is, this is what I think is going to happen with mapping um, in the future. Uh, well, it's already happening. Well, on that point, can you give us some examples of how GIS technology is already being used by businesses and governments to address critical climate issues? Well, I think I have about 650,000 organizations who actually are using our software in various ways. And they're not all profound, but many of them are. Uh, for example, UPS is routing their trucks. They saved last year over $400 million in doing it. Farmers are being able to understand what to plant, where, not only at a particular moment based on market conditions, but also they're looking years in the future and saying, I can't grow corn here anymore. I've got to move north or that sort of thing. You know, utilities are responding by managing their assets. And uh, uh, well, just it goes on and on. Cities are uh, amazing because they are bringing all their measurements together into a GIS and that drives better decision-making, more efficiency, and it also opens up a language to talk to citizens so they can say, well, I don't want to have zoning like that here. I want to have more biodiversity here, making cities come more alive. So, I mean, it goes on and on. I can't really, I can't get really hold back my enthusiasm about it because it's literally changing the way people do things, taking a geographic approach. Jack, critics often take issue with climate data or the interpretation of it. Why are maps and data, data visualization technology particularly trustworthy in the sometimes contentious climate arena? Well, particularly now when we're linking measurement to these maps and to these models dynamically, people seem to have more transparency about where the measurements are coming from. It isn't like going to the right or going to the left based on statistical spins on maps, but uh, it's more grounded in the basic science of geography. You know, geography is the science of our world and both on the social side and economic side, as well as physical side. Wow, geography is a kind of a platform for understanding. And as Richard Sell Werman once said, understanding precedes action. This is quite an extraordinary thought that uh, we're driving world's action through increased investments in maps of all types for the entire planet. What are you most optimistic about when it comes to the fight against climate change? Well, uh, there's a lot of depressing news and people see it, but um, see the evidence that things are not looking good. But what I am excited about is the idea that people are beginning to wake up to it, uh, from the president to international leaders that 
uh, I've seen talk about it. They're starting not only to understand the gravity of climate change, but also collaborate, uh, bringing their data together, understanding not only what's happening, but also uh, designing strategies. And we don't have good strategic thinkers in this regard. Last week, I spent time with a number of US senators, and one of them simply said, you know, Jack, we need a strategy for climate. And we don't. We have we have lots of stories and we're at the effect of it in politics, but we really need to strengthen how we think about it and how we design our way out of this. And that will take every bit of our science. It's gonna take all of our best technology, and of course, maps and geography are part of that, uh, but it'll also take our best creative design thinking, coming up with real solutions that move us to renewable energies, that move us to more efficiency in our organizations and also inform systematically all of the leaders so that they understand we've got to collaborate together on this. It's sort of like if the Martians were coming, maybe the world would get it together and work together. But you know, the, the fractions that are occurring, uh, pol polarization, uh, get in the way of that. But I, I like this idea that people can see things and uh, collaborate and create solutions together. This is what encourages me. It's hard to argue with a map. Jack Dangerman, president of ESRI, thanks so much for your insights. Thanks. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us again on Washington Post Live. If you're just new to the conversation here, I'm Timothy Puko, the Post climate correspondent. Our next guest will be Reina Atsuka. Uh, she's the head of digital innovation for nature, climate, and energy at the United Nations Development Program. Reina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tim, for having me. Uh, let's get started with a, a little talk about the organization you're with, the UN. Uh, I'm, I'm actually here in the studio, freshly back from New York, uh, where the, the General Assembly meetings are, are happening. We've got you know hundreds, maybe even thousands of diplomats there uh, just to talk about climate, among many other things. Um, and I, I'll tell you, there's a lot of frustration in parts of that community right now uh, about the difficulties, the challenges of getting uh, enough financing, especially to the developing world, uh, for them to deploy new technology, uh, both to grow, to um, end energy poverty, uh, to adapt. Uh, and so that's kind of the world that, that you're in, your program, uh, the UNDP. Uh, it, it, the goal, the work there is to help more than 100 countries meet their climate commitments from the Paris Agreement. It's, it's got to be an immense task. Um, can you just tell me, especially the, the landscape that I laid out on the financing side, how, how challenging is, is your work right now? Right. So maybe just to put things in context, UN Development Program is the development arm of the UN organizations. And basically, we work with the national governments and local communities to, to strengthen them uh, or their capacity so that they can um, be more resilient and also pursue the longer term development goals. And the nature, climate, uh, energy, uh, chemicals and waste, basically the triple planetary crisis area is one of our biggest uh, areas of intervention. And we're talking about, let's say, 1 billion people don't have access to energy yet, and most of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and then there's all, if we really want to uh, roll out all of the nationally determined contributions, which is basically the national targets toward um, 
reducing the emission and also to adapt to climate change. It, there, there is a report from UNFCCC that says uh, it, we need to access uh, 5.8 to 5.9 billion US dollars uh, to to actually get there. So it is a it is a big challenge and access to climate finance is one of the biggest challenge as well. And again, if you think about digital, digital, uh, people don't have connectivity. 2.7 billion people are not yet connected to the internet. So when there's all of these digital technologies and many other technologies out there that could potentially help us get to this climate change mitigation and adaptation. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the people who really are in need of these technologies don't even have access to the internet. So we're really trying to take this in a nuanced approach. Uh, it's it, it cannot be technology centered. It needs to be a whole of society approach and trying to look at what is it in need in the policy? What is it in need in the government capacity, the private sector and the people, the digital literacy and access to these technology? Uh, all of these need to be tackled as one. So this taking this holistic approach while also trying to develop and mitigate and adopt to climate change at the same time. I think that's that's a real challenge that we're, we're facing now. Yeah, can you describe uh, your group's role a little bit more, especially when we, we talk about that holistic approach? You've got the technology part of it, right? Like how, how do you actually execute that type of broad-based strategy to do kind of almost everything at once, right? Yeah. Yes. So again, UNDP is, uh, uh, we are supporting the national governments and we're, we're present in more than 170 countries and territories. And how we work with, we would work with the government partners. Uh, you know, it could be the Minister of Environment. If it is about the environmental issues, it could be Ministry of Forest and Natural Resources, depending on the country. And we would, um, we would basically we, we're not the funders. There are donors uh, like bilateral donors. We have other multilateral uh, donors such as the Green uh, Climate Fund or the, the Global Environment Facility who are there to channel some of these financing to these countries so that they can actually work toward uh, implementing projects that can mitigate climate change or or even other you know nature degradation, biodiversity, uh, all of these environmental issues uh, through the national governments. And so in terms of technology, so my role within this, this practice area of environment is to try to mainstream these different digital technologies into these programming. And we, we try to take a whole of society approach as I started to talk about. It, it is a framework we, 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 we try to start from trying to step take a step back and move away from just developing new applications or just you know introducing new technology we try to see what are the fundamental blocks that we need to bring to the government so that it can actually unlock a bigger innovation in the country or or um, or unlock transparency in the country and maybe um, just to give an example of transparency, so we are working with several governments now on their national transparency system, which is basically an information management system that helps the government or the country to, to collect and manage their data on GHG, greenhouse gas emissions, and as well as the actions that they're taking toward the nationally determined contributions, again, which is a target that, that the governments uh, have toward the, the climate change. And by doing this, we are trying to start to unlock 
uh, ways that different private sector companies can also take part in this climate change mitigation uh, journey together with the government. Uh, because again, climate change is not just a government issue, it is an issue with the, the private sector, with everybody, with the local communities. So the digital transformation of the government uh, needs to address the this fundamental uh, infrastructure part so that the, the rest of the, the country can actually come and take part in these uh, mitigation projects. I want to dig into the, the digital aspects um, a little more just uh, with my next question. But before we get there, I have one broader based question first. Our, our, our last, uh, on, tech, on the technology specifically, uh, our, our last guest here, uh, Granat Wagner, a climate economist at the Columbia Business School, was saying that in many cases, you know, the, the, the best solutions for emissions reduction, especially, is you know, old school type stuff like urban planning and even regular old bicycles uh, and, and bread and butter, clean energy tech like uh, wind, solar, uh, batteries, electric vehicles. Uh, is, is that how you're seeing it play out? Like is it, is those technologies, is that, is that, are, those, are they primarily what is leading the development in the countries that you're working with? Or are there other emerging and novel techs that are playing big roles as well? Well, I mean, it is a combination. Definitely, you know, the solar and uh, wind, those are the, the basic green technology that we, we start to build on. But the, the digital is a little bit different in a way. We actually, within the UNDP as well, we consider digital as one of the enablers alongside finance and innovation. And there's a reason around it because what digital is supposed to do is to make things happen 10 times better, 10 times more efficient, 10 times more at scale. And so by combining these, these uh, bread and butter technology, as you say, with these new digital technology, what could potentially happen is that we start to change the way the social economic uh, world works, right? It's so, for example, one, one good um, example is from mini-grids. Uh, solar mini-grids, solar panels has been around for ages, but the reason why solar mini-grids took off was because there were all of these ways of uh, new IoT sensors that can collect data on the ground and also communicate and, and all of these mobile phone payments, which started in, in, in Kenya and many other countries. And so by combining the actual solar PV technology with these pay-as-you-go or different types of collection of data, uh, the mini-grid took off because there was a way of a new business model where uh, people who don't have as much income and they, they can't pay the upfront cost of setting up solar panels on their on their sites uh, were able to start to use these new technology in ways that were not possible before without these cheaper and, and more radical technology. And I think in the past, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the major arguments that you've made is that um, the, the digital technology that you're talking about uh, can do a lot for local communities and empowering locals. I was wondering if you could give some examples about that to illustrate how that works, especially in, um, you know, in, in empowering communities leading to, to grassroots um, momentum. Sure. Um, one good example, well, there's lots of great examples happening on the ground, but for example, um, adaptation. If you think about climate change adaptation, a lot of the work that UNDP does is within the rural communities where the beneficiaries tend to be uh, farmers. And because be there, 
the way that they can make decisions can change when you have mobile technology. So in, before you would have to send a farmer extension service to actually help them to make decisions on what seed to plant or, or when to harvest. Whereas now with digital technology, they, they're more empowered to make their decisions on their own. And so, so that kind of, um, it's really about decentralizing this decision-making process. Uh, it's what what it's happening on the ground. Another example is uh, there's an interesting uh, climate finance uh, mechanism called the Payment for Ecosystem Service, and this is a results-based payment. Uh, usually, a lot of these climate finance still stays at the national level, where it's really difficult to trickle down to local communities. But things like this Payment for Ecosystem Service allows it's basically a contract between the farmer or, or a local community um, with the government to to make to conserve the forests that are on their farmland, for example, or any kind of biodiversity uh, ecosystem services that they might have. And by being a custodian of these nature, uh, they get to they get payments or or cash payments uh, to compensate for what they're doing, and. Again, digital technology is crucial to make this happen because you can imagine that you need to have a payment system. Instead of having to distribute cash, you, you can pay it easily. Or the, to monitor such project, you can, you can see that you need some earth observation data. You need to have geospatial data to make sure that the, the farmland is actually, uh, you know, where, where the forest is intact. So you see that it's not just a technology, it's not a single technology, but by combining these different types of technology and open data, we can start to really unlock different ways of accessing finance and benefit sharing of these finance, uh, as well as, of course, making decisions on their own uh, on the ground. A lot of what you're talking about seems so web dependent, quite frankly, and I, I know when you open here, you mentioned that a, a lot of the communities, countries that you're working in, web access is very limited. Is that the biggest problem that, that you and others in your field face at, at, at widespread deployment and adoption uh, of some of these digital options or, or are there other major challenges too? That's that's one of the major challenges for sure. But again, it's it's also related to regulations, uh, for example, security, privacy. Uh, a lot of these are also more soft uh, prob problems that we also face. Uh, again, and capacity is a bigger issue. Uh, people don't have the digital illiteracy sometimes. Or if you think about all of these data, geospatial, uh, these are science and, and it does require a stronger academic uh, and educational background to actually may be able to use it. So it is a combination of different problems. So yes, connectivity, 2.7 billion people not yet connected is a huge issue. And that, that's why we have to work as a partnership together, not just within UN organizations, but also with uh, private sector companies, uh, as well as, uh, of course, other, other types of development partners. Raina, you are reading my mind because I was going to ask about exactly that. I, I, I think you were at uh, last year's COP. That's the, the acronym we all use for uh, the giant UN climate conference that happens every year and, and brings uh, negotiators from almost every country in the world to, to try to hash out a deal on progress on reducing emissions. Um, at, at that time, I think, it, I think at last year's COP, um, you described the moment as an explosion of interest in, in the private sector. Uh, when it comes to climate tech investments, and I have to assume some of the the, the digital options that you're talking about, uh, where does the business world um, fit in um, specifically on that, on 
uh, on climate data collection, on, on digital options? Are, are, are they actually coming through with the investments you need to, to, to make the progress you're looking to make? That's a good question, and it's really nuanced, I must say. So, so basically, and right now there's a the New York. I'm here in New York now, and there's a General Assembly going on, as you know, and there's a Climate Week going on in parallel. There's a lot of private sector companies here and trying to make a difference in the world. So, um, a lot of the things private sector companies can do, especially the global big tech companies, would be to to act. Well, it will be to access uh, technology much more easier. Uh, also, it is about open data, uh, having ways of um, opening up the, well, open data, open algorithm. These are definitely important uh, because, again, a lot of the technology is advancing in these, you know, companies in the north, whereas the the companies that are starting up in the the south, as you call, uh, or the developing countries are still at early stage of, of technology development. So I do think having this equality or equity in in the technology is something that's very important that the private sector companies uh, can start to look into. Okay, so we're going to be doing this again uh, in just uh, I don't know. I was going to say a few months, but it might be closer than that. I I, I can't keep track. This year's COP. COP28 in Dubai coming up mostly in December. Um, you can imagine we're all preparing major coverage here. Um, but we get really wrapped up in the negotiations and the politics around it. And I know, like you were saying, that the, the business side, the private sector side has really grown a lot. Um, can you tell us a little bit how about how that plays out at, at these COP conferences? Are, are, are companies making deals to fund some of these things or, 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 or what role do they actually play when when they're there? Right. So there are philanthropic uh, companies out there. Uh, you know, they they come with foundations and actually try to fund some of these uh, good initiatives as use cases, and and that is that is wonderful. And and I, I I also come from the private sector. You know, as a career. So, but we also need to make know that these companies are not there to do things just for the good. Right. Like they do also need to make a make some kind of. Um, a profit out of it. So, um, so I think you know it is great to start from these use cases and try to um, invest in some of these countries, uh, so, so to say. Uh, I guess, uh, but there is also a tension that you know sometimes we end up getting uh, into this vendor lock-in or technology lock-in. So, I think it's there. There is some kind of tension there as well that. Uh, we want to be mindful not to be locking in some of these countries into certain technologies or vendors uh, mistakenly. So, um, so that that is happening. And at the same time, there's a lot of these venture companies who are starting up on you know innovative new ways of carbon credits or or um, even biodiversity credits these days. And it is great that these companies are really trying to create a new market. And I, I think, again, you know, the private sector company companies have great roles in bringing in finance and direct finance to these countries, uh, also starting new markets and, and, and new demand. So, um, so I think everybody's trying to figure out what that demand might look like or what that market might look like in, in the end. So I guess, you know, a plea from my end would be not to just try to, in, in the end, sell the product to the countries, but think about it as a digital ecosystem. How can the company, especially the big tech companies, come into some of these countries and not just end up selling the products, but actually build up the capacity of the people or or build up a, a, a ecosystem of different entrepreneurs and innovators in the country? I, I think if we can start to think in that way, uh, there's a lot of sense that that can be made.
We actually have a reader question that is kind of along those lines and how governments manage that. And well, we are, uh, we only have a couple minutes left. So if you could um, just, uh, uh, just be just be mindful, like if we, if we could get you an answer in 30 seconds here on this one. Uh, our reader, Brendan Conway uh, from the United Kingdom asks, how should governments, industry, and NGOs be working together to ensure that school-age students have the appropriate geospatial knowledge, understanding, and skills uh, to contribute uh, to the management of climate change? Good question. I, I think kids have to ask the right question. Um, we're seeing there's a lot of these data scientists who want to solve the problem and then the government asking different uh, problem statements. Um, I think the ability to learn these data science uh, background and then asking the right question is really what's missing right now. And I'd love to, you know, to, to teach the students how, how to ask the right question, uh, how to ask it in a data science way, data driven way. That's a new skill set that we really want to see in the next generation. Let me sneak in one one last question, if you don't mind. I want to go back to where we started because it, it, it's a big one. Just yesterday in uh, his General Assembly address, uh, the UN Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres, said, I'm, I'm going to look down here and read to you for a second. Every continent, every region, and every country is feeling the heat, but I'm not sure all leaders are feeling that heat. Actions are failing abysmally short. The fossil fuel age has failed. Uh, he was critical of the fact that the biggest emitters in the world, China and the U.S., are not at this big climate uh, summit today. Just some very quick concluding thoughts about what kind of signal uh, their absence might send to, to many of the countries you work with. Now that's a very difficult question, um, but but again, uh, you know, we are all on the same boat uh, in the end, and uh, we do need to think about it in the development context. Uh, yeah. In the end, um, these countries. I don't think. Uh, I don't think this this should change the the way that the countries are are moving toward the NDCs. All of the other countries have raised their their ambition in the past few years, uh, and we are seeing much more of these coming. So I do have hope that uh, it will not it will not uh, impact in a negative way. Well, we'll be watching for answers on that uh, in COP in the weeks to come. Raina, I just want to say you've been wonderful today. Thank you so much for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.